0: the book of first john first john if you don't know where first john is in your bibles uh, probably one of the best uh tips i can give you is to go to the very last book of the bible and start working uh backwards uh from there you're gonna go from revelation to jude and then from jude you're gonna go to these three letters of john third john second john and then you would be at first john first john is where we are going to be focusing our attention Uh, Hopefully you got a note sheet on your way in. If you don't have a note sheet, there are some at that back uh, little table here, as well as some Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, please grab one so you can follow along with us as well. How many of you guys uh, enjoyed the Hunger Games uh, theme that we had going on for Winter Retreat? Those of you who were there, yeah? It was great. It inspired me this last week. I actually watched the original... First movie again, just because it uh, AJ ruined me for that. So, um, you know the main main character in that movie, Katniss, right? Katniss Everdeen. Uh, what's her What's her strength in the arena? What's her of her skill? Yeah, bow and arrow, right? How many of you How many of you do archery for like PE? Anybody do archery for PE? They actually did that for us back when I was in. Yeah, junior high we did as well. I wonder if that's a standard thing. But uh, archery is really hard. It's it is not for the faint of heart. That is actually a really that is a really challenging uh, challenging skill. Uh, I say all that just because as I was trying to think through this week as we're going to dive into the letter of First John, which is going to take us pretty much through the rest of the uh, semester here, the rest of the school year. We'll we'll go through that pretty much up until. Uh, the middle of May, uh, unless we have some disruptions, but um, myself and Chris Metalman are going to be really kind of tag-teaming most of uh, the letter of 1st John here. As I was thinking about this jumping into the series, it's always always a challenge. I, I like to begin by helping people understand the reason why we're studying something. You know, there's, I could just choose something uh, and we just jump right into it and you just trust me for that. But uh, I believe in persuasion and trying to convince you why what we're studying uh, is good and right and appropriate because there's a lot that we could study from the Bible. There's 66 different books. There's countless number of topics that we could gather from those things. So why out of the Grand scheme of everything that we could choose in the Bible, do we choose the letter of 1 John? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm just going to build a case for you for why we're going to do this over the next uh, several months. Um, I mentioned before, myself, Chris Medelman will kind of be tag teaming a lot of this. A couple other leaders will be jumping in here and there. Um, but we're going to look at uh, building a case for this by looking at those two ideas. Uh, that we think about in archery. You think about the archer, and you think about the target. You think about the goal, the aim of that particular individual. and so we're going to do that this morning as we look at first John um, and look at both the archer and the target. Uh, maybe we'll do though, because you know I, I still believe firmly in us being able to read something uh, from these letters. I want to go to maybe the passage that I think uh, summarizes some of the main themes really well in this uh, book. So let's go to First John uh, chapter five. From, uh, 1 John chapter five. I'll just read a very short passage for us. If you would go ahead and stand, we'll do that. I think First John five one through five really summarizes a lot of the main themes in this book. Well, so let's read that real quick. First John chapter five, verses one through five. This is where John says, "Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever the Father, uh, whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God." Of God. You can go ahead and have a seat. And I'm going to pray and just ask for God to bless the short time that we have together here this morning to uh, open this series. So, uh, Father, we do thank you now. Um, thank you for the privilege that we have each week to gather together, to study, to grow, to learn, to be um, humble enough to take time out of the week to hear what you have to say and we truly want to embrace what john is teaching in this letter Uh, so many of his goals and his aims in this letter are so important and so pertinent for our young people so i pray today that you would give us humble hearts to listen and to receive uh, what John would so desire for us over these next few months. So please bless our time and our study, we'd ask today in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned at the outset here, we're going to take this study this morning in two different parts. And we're going to look this morning uh, both at the author of this letter and we're going to look at his purposes. And I recognize that that can sound, uh, from your perspective, uh, a little bit boring. Uh, I get that. Um, my hope is that it won't be boring um, because I think that both those things are going to help you better understand it the most out of what uh, we're going to be covering these next few months. So I want to begin this morning by looking at the archer. The archer here who is John, right? Who is John? This guy who is writing this letter Uh, I think that there's a lot that we can learn from him um, and better understand why he writes the way that he does. So let's look at four different aspects about John and his life. I want to begin by thinking about John the sinner. Might not be what you expected or what you thought we would start with this morning, but John the sinner. Uh, Because the reality is, even though John was an apostle, even though he was a, a writer of biblical texts, Even though uh, his name is well-known in church history, John was a sinner, just like you and me. Uh, When Jesus called John to follow him, there was really nothing special about John. Uh, Those of you who know your Bibles, what, what was John by profession? Hmm? Oh, not John the Baptist. Ah, this is good, because we're not talking about the same John here. Anybody know? What was John by profession? He was a fisherman. He was uh, in close association with Peter and Andrew and James. Those guys were all fishermen. Uh, Very common laborers in the region around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, He was... For lack of better words, he was kind of just a blue-collar worker. Uh, There was nothing necessarily impressive about him and his skill sets. Uh, Really, there was nothing desirable that you would see in a guy like John. And yet, he was called by Jesus to follow him. And not just that, but we learned little bits and pieces of information about John throughout the Gospels, and John had a couple of unique uh, sin problems. Um, Anybody know what those sin problems might be? What do we know about John and maybe some of his issues? Leaders, feel free to jump in too if you know What was an issue, especially he shared most of his issues with his brother James. Let's see. You remember that he and his brother ended up earning a nickname by Jesus? He gave him a a special, special name. Do you know what that was? I hear some, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. And do you know where that name came from? Or why he ascribed that name to them? Yeah, Allie. What's that? Because they were always fighting? Uh, they definitely were fighting a lot. But in particular, there was an incident. Uh, these guys were really upset that a group of uh, people were rejecting Jesus. Jesus was ministering to them, and they were ridiculing Jesus. They were rejecting his teaching, making him seem like he was a complete fool. And you remember what James and John do to Jesus? They say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them, right? You guys do that at all? You ever just been in a conversation with somebody and be like, man, if I could just call down some lightning, right? Just strike them on the spots. Uh, They they were not exactly the most patient of men. They were not the most, this will come important for later, they were not the most loving of men. They had their issues. They were quick-tempered. They were easily frustrated. They fought a lot. And one of the things that they fought a lot about, not just amongst each other but with the other disciples, was the basis of their other issue, which was pride. Or we could even say power. If you remember in the Gospels, probably one of the best memories I have of James and John in the Gospels, especially Mark 10, they have their mom do their dirty work for them, and their mom goes up to Jesus, and do you remember what her request on behalf of James and John was? Yeah, Will? Yeah. They wanted the seats of honor next to Jesus in his coming kingdom. It's a bold request. Um, I mean, that would actually be a pretty nice thing, right? But here they are, and they're thinking still primarily about Jesus' kingdom as a place of honor and glory and about them. Jesus would later famously go on in Mark 10 there to remind them that uh, really... They should not. Uh, power is something that the Gentiles pursue to lord it over other peoples, but he says it shall not be so among you. Any of you who wants to be first must be last. Any of you who wants to be a leader must be servant. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I, I, I say all this, I give you all this information about John because I think. I think it helps us paint a very human picture of this guy and the very real struggles that he faced. Uh, He is not a whole lot different than some of you here in this room who maybe for one way or the other really struggle in human relationships. Uh, For some of you who in this room are really seeking your own glory, your own power, your own advancement, whatever that looks like, maybe in the realm of sports or academics or music. I think we can all relate to the very same struggles that John himself faced. But, of course, that's not the end of John's story. We know that there's much more to it. We also know about John the Apostle. John the Apostle. uh, This was the very man who walked with Jesus and witnessed him in his resurrected state for nearly three years. And for all of John's issues, he was still, get this, for all of John's issues, he was known became known as the disciple that jesus loved only only person amongst jesus's 12 that was given that ascription Um, obviously jesus loved all of his disciples we wouldn't doubt that but there was a a particular love and affection and friendship that jesus shared with john That was different than it was with maybe all the other men. He was part of Jesus's most inner circle. And we see that this love that Jesus showed John would become transformative in John's life and ministry. In fact, John would later not be known as a son of thunder, but he would become known later as the disciple of. Love uh, If you were to read his gospel, if you were to read the letter of First John, second John, third John, you will see, you cannot escape the theme of love. And I believe that it's because he experienced and understood the love of Jesus toward him. That allows him now to write with such conviction and such direction in his love for others. If you remember, if you were here for the winter retreat, you remember our speaker Matt talking about how church history records uh, John uh, for a brief period was actually maybe the pastor at the church in Ephesus and his instruction that he was known for saying to people Whenever he would walk into a room, the repeated phrase that he continued to give to the people was what? you remember? Love one another. Little children love one another. So we see this is transformative in his life. And it would shape the way that John would become the writer. The writer John. Uh, John would go on to write five different books in the new testament he's the author of the gospel of john he is the author of the three letters first second and third john and he is the author of the final book revelation and so next to paul no one has written more more in the new testament you got paul who's written Uh, I can't remember the exact number, but he's written a huge chunk of the New Testament, but John is right after him. Um, But John is unique in the sense that he has a greater span of genres, right? He has a gospel, he has letters, he has an apocalyptic literature that we see in Revelation. And these ideas that he talks about in his gospels and his letters are all very much the way that Christ has impacted his life and shaped him as an individual. So we see John the sinner, John the apostle, John the writer. And finally, we see John the exile. Uh, most people maybe don't know this about John. In fact, the uh, only reason we know this is if you were to go to actually the, the book of Revelation where he actually wrote the book of Revelation while in exile. You see, when the, the pressures of the early church were really increasing, uh, many of the disciples, according to church history, were martyred. Um, in fact, our records would tell us that 11 of the 12 disciples, Jesus's original, uh, not original, but his core disciples— Ended up being killed for their faith in different places all over the world for spreading the gospel. There was only one who was not martyred. Only one who was not killed for his faith. And that was John. But that is not to say that John did not suffer for his faith. In fact, as I mentioned before, he was exiled. He was exiled on an island known as Patmos. Uh, very unique name, but he was exiled there, where he would basically spend his days waiting out to die. He's probably in his nineties when he's writing uh, the the Book of Revelation. Um, but to him, this was a small sacrifice. And the grand scheme of things for everything that Christ had done for him. Uh, John was a man who learned that there's no cost too great because of the cost that Christ paid for him. And so he was willing and endured, and in fact, peds uh, the very final letter, the final book that we have in our Bibles, that closes out and completes the New Testament. Uh, He has essentially the last words to write. And in fact, do you know what the final words of the book of Revelation are? They're beautiful and they're appropriate considering everything that John had written and what he wanted us to know. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That was John's hope and John's excitement for his people. Before he had even penned uh, this final book of Revelation, he did write the book of 1 John. And that's where we're going to turn our attention and our focus and our study over these next few months. And so the question is, why is John writing this letter? What's the purpose? What's the goal? What's the aim? Or as we have said in our imagery here, what's the target? What does he want you to know about this? Why is he writing to this particular group of believers? And what is it that he desires them to know that we might benefit from together here this morning as well? I want to give you four reasons, four targets, four reasons that John is writing this letter that will be... uh, front and center in our study together over these next few months, the first of which is this, so that you will have joy, so that you will have joy. Look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, notice Paul, uh, notice John says this, and John is probably writing alongside some close associates. That's why he uses the word we here. But he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In fact, I going to back up and go back to verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John's desire, and he says here that you would share in our joy. Joy is a word that we've talked about a lot. Joy is a word that means more than just pure happiness, so it can mean that at times. But joy speaks to a lasting satisfaction. A lasting satisfaction that transcends life and its trials, its circumstances, even when times are not so good. And the question is, how can that be possible? I don't know about you, but as I hear that, that sounds pretty good to me because life has its issues, doesn't it? You as a student, though as young as you are, you're starting to understand that yourself. You're starting to experience that and the challenges that come where life can be robbed of of joy and satisfaction. What John wants to point you back to and wants to point us back to in this letter is the source and the opportunity for true and lasting joy. And notice where he says it comes from. It doesn't come from this life, It doesn't come from this world. It doesn't come in your pursuits of a particular job, a particular sport, a particular achievement, a particular relationship, a particular status amongst people. He says that joy can only be found in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so why is John writing this? He, he wants to make sure you understand where true and lasting joy is found. And that is found in Christ alone. But there's another reason. There's another reason he's writing, and it doesn't come long after this. It comes in chapter 2, verse 1, where we see that he is doing this so that you will live obedient. you will love obediently. And I know a bunch of you just checked out maybe because you're like, the last thing I wanted to come to church this morning to hear is about how I need to be more obedient. And I get that. I understand. Um, you know, we're, we're at a tough stage with our girls right now where they're learning the struggles of uh, the role of what obedience plays in a, in a given household and how obedience is connected to love and service and sacrifice. We get it. But we need to understand the place of obedience in the Christian life. I think, first of all, we need to understand the order of things. Because some, sometimes I think that there's a real struggle in the church where we think to ourselves that obedience is the key to relationship with Jesus. In other words, I'll put it another way, that if I'm going to uh, have a relationship with Jesus, then I must obey him first. And I think if we're thinking that way, we have started off on the very wrong foot because the reality is we're never going to be obedient enough to earn a relationship with Jesus. You're going to fail. You're going to mess up. You're going to constantly... Uh, be looking at yourself and all your shortcomings and you're going to wonder if you ever will ever measure up and the answer is you're not that's a that's a disheartening thing and for a lot of people they even think about obedience too in terms of how do i keep my relationship with the lord i will talk about that more in a moment here but sometimes we we believe that in order for God to, to keep his love for me, it's going to be based on how obedient I am to his commands, how faithfully I live out my life, and therefore if I continue to mess up, uh, I'm going to be questioning whether or not I have a relationship with God, or maybe God is going to forsake me, uh, and that produces all kinds of fears, worries, and anxieties, and honestly, That's where I spend a lot of time even counseling students these days is in that very reality because there's a disconnect on what the role of obedience is to the Christian life. But I want to go back to, to answer this, I want to go back to what we read a moment ago from 1 John chapter 5 because did you, did you catch the phrase that John uses to describe obedience and the commands of God? says this in verse 3 of chapter 5. Listen to this. If, if you haven't listened to anything yet this morning, I'm just going to ask you to listen for a few more seconds. Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now stop right there. Because we think to ourselves, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Oh shoot, like I, how am I going to maintain the love of God if I, if I can't perfectly keep his commandments? But notice... Also, what he says in the second half here, he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. One of the things I've I've seen over the years with with people and the Christian life, or even some of the, uh, the stigmas that are attached to Christianity, it comes from this idea that... Christianity is a burdensome religion because it's all about rules. It's all about following uh, a certain way, doing this, doing that. If you don't do these things, there's shame, there's judgment. And and there's this idea that, well, God doesn't really, he he wants to keep me from doing the fun things in this world. And so I, you know, I I guess I'll do them because it's what I'm supposed to do. But maybe I don't really want to do them. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament because it reminds us the appropriate perspective of God's commandments. If we understand these things in their appropriate order, that if we understand that we are sinners who have been saved from an eternal punishment In hell, because of the nature of our sins and what we deserve before God. If we understand the amazing rescue plan that we have received from God, then that changes the way that we're going to relate. My relationship with God and my obedience to God is not because I'm trying to earn his favor. It's not because I'm trying to keep his favor. It's not because, well, it's what I should do because, well, he did this for me even though I don't really care to do this. No, the proper perspective, if you have brought been brought into a saving relationship with Jesus and you understand that for what it really is— When you see God telling you something of how you should live and how you should go about your life, you're going to see that what He's asking of you is not much at all. It's not what we would call a burden, it's not a weight on you. In fact, I would argue that for you as a Christian, You're going to see that as the greatest source of freedom rather than bondage. You're going to see that when God is calling you to something, even though it's hard, even though your sinful nature sometimes fights against it and doesn't see it the way that God does, you believe in your heart that that is what God has put in place for your greatest joy, your greatest freedom, and your greatest life. That changes everything. And so when we say here that John is writing so that you will live obediently, he's not just trying to have well-polished followers on the outside who look really good but on the inside have no real affection for God. No, he's saying that I want you to live obediently because you have a proper understanding of what God has done for you. In fact, let me continue reading there, chapter 2, verse 1, because I want you to hear this. And he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, you hear that? I'm writing these things so that you wouldn't sin. So you would live obediently. So you would uh, live out your life the way that God wants you to. But notice what he says in the very next line. But if anyone does sin, which the previous passage, the previous Uh, paragraph tells us you will, you will still mess up. Some of you, you've already done that this morning. If you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, we have an advocate. We have one who represents us, who stands ready to plead our case. Who says, listen, I'm not expecting you to be perfect because you're not going to be perfect. I want you to grow in holiness. I want you to grow in your love and your devotion to me. But when you fail, and you will fail, guess what? I am going to be there to plead your case because I have purchased you. I have redeemed you and I have brought you into my family. You belong to me in the best way possible. So John is writing so that you would have lasting, satisfied joy in Christ. That you would live in obedience to Christ and the freedom that his commands bring. But thirdly, he is writing so that you will, have, uh, so that you will be discerning. So you will be discerning. We see this in chapter 2, verse 26, where he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. John is no stranger to false teachers. He knows that this church can be very influenced by people who have a wrong message about Jesus, who live in a way that says you can do this and it's fine, but it's it's truly disobedience to the Lord. John knows the threats That is facing every single believer in Christ. This side of glory. And he wants them to be. The word I use here is discerning. And that's a big word. I almost thought about not using it. But I think it's a biblical word. And it's a good word for all of you to learn. Uh, Discerning or discernment. Is the ability to make wise calculations. Not too far from what we talked about with wisdom. In the book of Proverbs. But I like the way one uh, author has said it when he defined discernment. He said discernment is not being able to distinguish right from wrong. It's the difference between being able to distinguish right from almost right. Because if we're honest, that's that's where the real threat is, right? When something comes to us in the guise of Christian teaching because the person claims that they are Christian or because they uh, sing songs that are on Christian radio or they stand in the pulpit of a church that claims to be Christian, we automatically take that at face value and we say, well, of course, like, it's got to be good, right? But to be discerning is to understand the difference between right and almost right. Right. John wants his followers to understand you have to measure everything. You have to test it against God's word. You must, uh, as he says in chapter 4, test the spirits. We'll talk more about what that means. But it essentially essentially means you need to be not naive. A young person, that's that's something that your age group can be very well known for. And I, I know that because I was in your shoes once. Again, there's a lot that comes under the title of of Christian and and church, and we assume the best. And I I think that Christians in some ways should be known as people who uh, assume the best. But that doesn't mean that we don't measure and think carefully and critically about what this person is saying or what this person is singing or what they are counseling and measuring against God's standard. John is so concerned for his children. He's like a protective parent, right? In a good way. Good way, protective parents. He wants them to be walking in the way that's going to give them true life. But the final reason that he writes this letter, and I would say this is maybe, if could be honest, this is probably the overarching. If there's one aim that's bigger than all the others that maybe is encompassed even with these three, it's this that you would have assurance. And in particular, that you would have assurance of your salvation. Uh, This is the concluding reason that he gives in chapter 5, verse 13, where he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know That you have eternal life. If you notice at the start of uh, this morning, the, the title for our series here in 1 John is that phrase, that you may know. John wants his people to know that they are walking in the truth, he wants them to know that it is possible. To be certain about your salvation. And he's going to do some things throughout the letter to, to help you with that. He's going to give you markers that he's going to come back to time and time again. The, the three main markers that he's going to hit on for you are this. He's going to make sure you have a right understanding of Jesus. Right? If you don't, if you don't have a right understanding of Jesus, his person, his, his work, what he's done for you, then you're not starting with the right foundation. He wants to make sure that you are appropriately understanding who you are in relationship to Jesus and what he has done for you. Secondly, he wants to make sure you have proper obedience to God. And that obedience, again, is motivated by the right things. But it also is making sure we don't uh, have a wrong understanding of obedience. Because sometimes I think we we believe that our, our obedience means we have to be. We have to be perfect. That we have to, you know, if we sin one day, then we've totally messed things up. But there's a big difference in terms of the word he uses for practicing obedience versus practicing unrighteousness. So we're going to talk about that. Make sure we have a clear understanding of what obedience means and looks like in the Christian life. But then the third mark he's going to talk about time and time again is our obvious love for other Christians. The way that we seek to love the family of God. If you are a Christian, and if there are Christians around you right now, they are your brother or your sister in the faith. John does not take that relationship lightly. And he says that if you are a genuine follower of God, then you're going to relate to your brother and sister in Christ appropriately in love and sacrifice and humility. This is, in some ways, a really tricky letter because John's going to kind of cycle through these things, uh, and sometimes it's not going to feel like he's got a very clear order and a reason for these things, and and that's okay. We're going to just hit them as they continue to go time and time again. But next week, we're going to dive into this study. We're going to begin by looking at the first four verses. I would encourage you to read it in advance. In fact, I would encourage you to read the entire book between now and next week. If you take a chapter a day... You only need five days this week to do that, but that'll set you on the right place, right trajectory as we begin to launch into this letter, as we better understand the purpose and the aim that John has for us. This is, I think, in many ways, one of the best books in all of the Bible for teenagers to study, and I, I don't use that lightly. You obviously need the Gospels. You need the great news about Jesus Christ. But the, for those of you who are walking in, in faith, I mentioned this before, one of the biggest struggles or one of the biggest matters of counseling that I face here at Newcastle is people who are lacking assurance. And so my hope is that this book will allow you to better gauge and see where you are in terms of your relationship with the Lord. And that's a good thing. You want to know that. So let's pray. We'll ask God's blessing on our study as we launch into it these future weeks, and then you can be dismissed. So, God, we do pray to that aim that you would help our students as we launch into this study, as we better seek to understand uh, John's purpose and John's goal to help us know that we have eternal life. And in a room this size, I think it would be it would be amazing to to know that that would be all of us. But Lord, my own experience would tell me that's probably not the case. And so even as we encounter Jesus in this letter and we think about the love that he has for us, I pray that for those who don't know you, you would stir their hearts that you would bring them to a conviction of their sins and that they would recognize the amazing sacrifice that Christ has made on their behalf to draw them into relationship with him. We know that that would be a really sweet thing as we pray to that end that you would accomplish these things, that your people would walk in the truth, walk in obedience, and be a light for you in this world. So would you do that for the glory of your name? We ask and pray. Amen.